yes, as a strength conditioning coach, you didn't directly make them better at football, but you gave them the opportunity to get better at football. And at the end of the day, that's what we do. We, we create opportunities for athletes by improving biomechanical abilities and biomotor abilities. Sometimes it works better for others and other athletes, they're already superstars, they're already so talented that hopefully maybe we can influence and just reduce their injuries a bit. You, you've got to be, I think, as a strength issue coach, humble enough to understand that, that you're not that important, but also confident enough to understand that in some cases you can be. Welcome to the Find the Gap podcast, where we're going to focus on the health and well-being of the support personnel and practitioners within high-performance sport. This will act as a platform for practitioners to share their own insights and experiences that have helped them progress to where they are today, as well as be a safe environment in which they can touch upon moments of vulnerability and other emotional battles in which they've had to overcome in order to be successful. My name is Sam, and thanks for joining me on the Find the Gap podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Sustainable Sports. Sustainable Sports is an apparel company designed for every athlete. Every piece of apparel is produced and made from recycled plastic bottles, which at the end of the period of use can be returned to be remade into the new model. 80% of discarded textiles can just sit there for more than 200 years, which emits methane, powerful greenhouse gas that is more potent than carbon. Sustainable Sports looks to be the apparel company that uses 100% recycled polyester fabric to help protect the planet. Their products are designed to look and feel great in order to boost the performance of those wearing them. Sustainable Sports understands the difficulties in community level sports and the struggles that local clubs have to endure throughout the season to get the players on the park. Sustainable Sports is made up of the individuals who are passionate and involved within sports at the grassroots levels. So today I'm talking to Lachlan Wilmot. And Lachlan has been working in the fitness industry going on 17 years, working with both the general population and elite level athletes. After completing his Bachelor in Exercise Sports Science, Lachlan continues education, completing his honor thesis in Sports Science. So Lachlan spent eight years as a Senior Athletics Performance Coach specializing in strength and power at the GWS Giants AFL Club based in Sydney. After previous involvement with the IAS AFL Academy and New South Wales Australian Capital Territory AFL Academy. Lachlan then moved across to the Parramatta Eels NRL Club to take on the role of the High Performance Manager. After two seasons at the club, he made the decision to transition to his private company, Athletes Authority, where he's currently the Director of Coaching and Performance. Athletes Authority is a company that specializes in athletic development and sports education. Lachlan also currently sits on the Board of Directors for the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. So we're very excited to have a chat with Lockie and without any further ado, here's our chat. Perfect. So, Lockie, thank you very much for jumping on the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, mate. Yourself? Yeah, good. Good. Um, like we were talking before, just both in lockdowns and getting through it. But, mate, just to get us rolling, do you want to give me just a little bit of background on yourself? So, maybe some educational background and maybe a little bit of a step-to-step uh, process of where you got to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, I am by trade a personal trainer into an undergrad of exercise science. Um, I'm uh, a strength conditioning coach for most of my career. Um, it's sort of evolved from a, a personal trainer at Fitness First into uh, the state academies of, of the AFL um, and then was at the GWS Giants AFL for, for eight years uh, as their strength and power coach 
um, and then moved to the dark side of NRL uh, as the head of performance at Parramatta Eels. So I uh, headed up my own program there, which was great. Um, while I was in pro sport, I, uh, I started a, 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 a company called Athletes Authority with my business partner, Carl Goodman. Um, so we, we sort of evolved a private uh, athlete training facility over the past five years. Um, and in 2019, yeah, end of 2019, um, it got to a stage where it was uh, at, a, at, a, at a size that I needed to, to jump into it and move across to the private sector. So um, that was, yeah, to 10 years in professional sport and uh, made the shift across into the, the private sector to, to continue to grow um, what is my, my absolute passion, which is my facility athletes authority here in Sydney. Um, and myself and Carla have been working together ever since and, and looking to, to continue to expand. So that's a, a brief synopsis, I hope didn't drag on. <laughs> yeah, very brief synopsis for what I think would be a massive career. Um, and you touched on just then what your passion is now, what you guys are doing, athletes, uh, athletes authority. But I was wondering if you could just delve into that a little bit more. Like what, what made you, what gave you the drive to really want to start up athletes authority and what is really your passion? Yeah. So firstly, um, from a young age, I kind of knew that, um, I never wanted, I never wanted a boss. Um, uh, I, I like the idea as uh, egotistic as it sounds. Um, to, to be the boss. Um, I like to control my own schedule. I like to control my own things. Um, so even when I was in professional sports, I, um, I knew I didn't want to answer to a head coach my whole life. Um, and regardless, even if you don't have that, that drive to be your own boss, I think a lot of people would probably not want to answer to a head coach their, their whole life. It's, um, it certainly has a, a, a pressure and a bit of a stress on you when, uh, when it's sort of day in, day out uh, phone calls from a head coach. So um, I always knew I wanted to do something outside of professional sport. I just probably didn't know exactly how I wanted it. Um, when I was a personal trainer, I would have, always had the dream to own my own gym. Um, I think a lot of sort of PTs do. Uh, so I suppose that the two sort of combined together and um, I saw um, the fact that, that we just don't really have um, a strong private sector for athlete development. Um, and the gap between amateurs to professionals were massive. Um, I was at the Giants and I had 18-year-olds coming to me that had been through state academies, all these different programs, and didn't even know what a dumbbell looked like, let alone how to move it. Um, and obviously weights isn't the be-all and end-all, but that was a, a bit of a, a, a summary for their entire knowledge of, of athletic performance and what they should be doing. Um, so it was a bit of a... A goal to, you know, the, the motto we sort of have here is to, to bring professional sport to the amateur ranks. Um, and that's everything. That's from the professionalism, recovery, physiotherapy, rehab, performance, um, everything that we did and everything that we valued in the professional sector, um, I'm trying to now bring to the private sector. Uh, and it's something that, you know, I'm biased because it's our, our facility, but I think we do it better than anyone. Um, and it is, it is being that passion that, um, I've seen the results that it's, it's brought. I've seen the buy-in that athletes have, and, and probably more so in the rehab space, the, the intricacies and the, the, the attention to detail we have with rehab and the results we get um, is something that you see in people's faces when they return to sport and especially people that have done rehab before with other people, uh, whether that be previous ACLs. You know, we, we get a lot of our ACLs come to us that, have had their operation six or seven months ago and still are in pain. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, that's just not good enough. And meanwhile, that they arrive 
And we also get a lot of people that come to us before they even have the surgery um, and they'll do some prehab, they then jump into surgery, they then come back to us. And it's amazing. We have some people at the, the three-week mark that are moving better and with less pain than people that have come to us at the six-month mark that have not done proper rehab. Um, and that sort of, that blows them away. Um, so it is, it is something for us that um, it's a passion, obviously, but it becomes more and more of a passion every day that, that I see the results. Mm. And it's definitely for sure like you're an example of what that passion drives those results, doesn't it? Like it, it's a product of it. Um, yeah, and, 100%. yeah. And you can see that, like, like you said, we are, when you were with GWS, we started all those years ago, there was this big gap between professional sport or professional athletes and guys who were in the amateur level. Whereas there's over in America, there's, I don't think there's as much of a gap kind of thing from professional to amateur. Um, and then, totally yeah. And then Australia is slowly trying to build up kind of thing. And then I would completely agree. I think that for example, uh, a facility like yourself is at that benchmark for Australia. Do you think there's other facilities around the different states? Because I think definitely Sydney, you've got capped. But do you know of any other like facilities around the different states that are trying to do what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Look, there's there's plenty of facilities around. Look, there's plenty of facilities around trying to do what we do. I think if you speak to strength conditioning coaches, um, most of them are going to say that they love training athletes and they want to train athletes. Um, but they're going to be in a facility that won't be able, well, one of two things, either is too young to be able to niche down on just athletes um, or perhaps doesn't have the confidence to mm. bite the bullet and just go with athletes because they're afraid that they're, they're going to lose money. Um, you know, we've gone through that evolution. We, we are unique in Australia, the fact that, you know, I could be wrong. There might be a little facility out there I don't know of, but I do know the most that um, we are probably the only facility that only trains athletes. We don't have a single general member. We don't have a single open membership. We don't have a single person that comes in here to drop weight. Every single person is on a long-term contract with us here. Uh, they're in one of two programs, our athlete development program or our rehab program, um, and they are all striving to be better at their sport. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be um, like on the cusp of making professional. We certainly have a lot of them. But if you're a third grader that wants to train to get to second grade, then that's the culture. That's what we, that's what we want to do. So we're not elitist in the fact that we only train high-level athletes. We, we only train athletes because the mentality needs to be they're getting better for their sport. So that could be lower level, could be high level. Um, so when we look at other facilities doing that, there's certain facilities around Australia. So in Adelaide, you've got Pete. Uh, P-E-A-Q, um, they, they run a great program there. Um, we have Woodford Sports Science in Melbourne that have been doing it nine years now, I believe. Uh, so they're probably one of the original set up there. Um, we then have Core Advantage in Melbourne. It's a, a large facility. They have a number of athletes going through there. They have a real athlete development focus. Um, so there's certainly a, a facilities out there and people doing similar things. Um, again, I'm going to be biased and some people might say it's arrogant, but I still don't think they're as good as us. But, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to think, think that because I'm always going to believe in our product. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an industry that we have great relationships with. And the people that I've named are all, you know, they're either close friends or they're friends of the facility. And um, we, we always promote, promote our own. And, and um, you know, if people are in Adelaide and, and they need to find someone, I'm obviously going to recommend Pete. 
Um, so it's one of those things. It's it's competition without being competitive, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, but yeah, there's, there's certainly people that are trying to close the gap, and I think there's a lot of people out there that that want to close the gap more. Um, but we're we're sometimes handcuffed by the nature of our of our industry in Australia, where um, we, we don't quite have the population America has. Um, we don't quite have the sponsorship money um, in professional leagues that America has. And most importantly, our, our professionals don't have the same time off um, because, as you can imagine, um, how much influence we have on professional athletes is governed by how much time away from the club they have. So in America, they can three, four months they can have off. Um, in Australia, you know, depending on the sport, six to, six to eight weeks, maybe 10 if you're a senior player in the AFL. Um, but yeah, six weeks isn't isn't long when you consider they'll finish. They'll have a week of reviews. They'll have two weeks of being drunk. They'll have two weeks away traveling, and then they're back and it's ready to start preseason again. So um, our facilities aren't going to really support the professional uh, side just yet until they get longer longer off seasons. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, rolling back a little bit to before you were Athletes Authority and you were at uh, getting your first time or your first full-time role, sorry, in high performance sport. So, which I'm sure you would GWS, correct? Was that the first full-time? What was, um, was that a, was that like a revealing, uh, sorry, a relieving feeling or how did that feel again at your first full-time role in performance sport? Yeah, it didn't last very long. It was a, <laughs> I think every transition coach's goal is to eventually have only one job. Um, when we're young, where we've got 14 different jobs, if you're lucky, they're all related to strength and conditioning or personal training. But, but sometimes people are pulling beers on the weekend, training, training during the week, um, working with a team on the, you know, a, a Tuesday, Thursday night. Um, so I was certainly like that. I had three or four different roles. I was doing PT clients. I was doing AFL New South Wales work. I was doing Team GWS work. I was doing uni, um, getting all around. So um, when I finally signed on the dotted line and got my, my first full-time job, it was, yeah, it was like, Jesus, now I can actually put all my energy and focus into this. Um, unfucking stoppable How amazing. Like, this will, this will be the best. Um, within about two or three weeks, I realised, yes, yeah, it's, it's all one focus on one team, but um, there is a lot of work, a lot of work. So um, that short-lived relief of oh, my energy can now just go into the one job um, was quickly taken away by just the sheer workload that is managing. Um, at that stage, we had 56 um, athletes on our list. We had the biggest list in the AFL. We, the majority of them, like we had, a, we had one of our years where we had 26 21st birthdays in the one year. Um, so we actually ended up having a party for all 26 21st. Um, so that obviously dialed that back. You know, your, your three years, and we had you know almost 26 18 year olds. So um, it, it's it was hard. It was. You know, as you can imagine, with 18-year-olds, when you're a strength conditioning coach in you know, an established club, and, and the way I was, you know, at the back end of my, my career at GWS is you'd get a handful of newbies in each year. You could put a bit of focus into that. You could evolve there. They, they saw senior people lifting and moving, and they, they learned from that. Um, in the first year or two, there was, there was nothing, none of that. Like, I was the strongest in the gym. And like so, so when I'm the strongest in the gym, like it's, it's, it's not great because you know I'm not training them. So you're trying to encourage them. It's that you know trying to tell them to 
you know, you can lift 100 kilos on the bench and, you know, that, that old glass ceiling is funny that, you know, we had one of our kids lift 100 kilos on the bench press um, and within a month we had eight or nine all hit 100 kilos because it's just, it evolves. Um, so it's a very unique experience and anyone that's worked with junior teams where they've just got the juniors, they'll, they'll understand that um, it, it's really trying to set the scene to, to try and unearth what these guys are capable of. Um, and that's that's a more than a full-time job in itself, yeah. Yeah, 100%, mate. Um, I was talking to John Quinn um, by one of my previous episodes. Um, obviously, you know John Quinn from starting with Tito. Yeah, he's the one who gave me the job, yeah. Yeah, absolute legend. Um, but I was talking to him about his experience starting with GWS, and he was talking about um, when you're starting in AFL or when you get a job in AFL, you've got these clubs that have you know, years and decades of, of history and you, and you walk into rooms where they've got posters on the wall and, and pictures and, and uh, memorabilia and you think, wow, you've got to be a part of this club now and you've got to, you know, contribute to this culture. You know, with GWS, GWS it was their first year and, and you're being that, literally that first strength coach. Um, I wanted to get your point of view on how that, how you took that, you know, because, you know, you could be replacing someone from last year, last season, whatever, but then this, you were their first in this club establishing yeah. this as a number one how did you take that you know physically but also mentally honestly i did not even think about it for eight years because that's all i knew um i walked in there and it was exciting i was the i was you know one of the second employees of gws and it was a, a thrill to be able to go in and and you know we're building something from scratch and you know Quinny was was the high performance manager in 2011 um, i've been there in 2010 for the development uh the tsc cup team um so that was a unique experience as well and then in 2011 um when Quinny came on board it was it was me and him it was sort of like a let's do it you know Quinny's the old head he'd been at Essendon. um we did a lot of things that you know Quinny even said oh, i've tried this before but it's a unique experience let's give it a go and so i always felt that um it was an environment where where you could. It was fresh. It was new. It was it was ready to have our fingerprints on it. Um, you know, I I take a lot of pride in, in looking at the, the team now and, and knowing how much influence we had on, on a lot of those players when they were young coming through. And and it's an experience that it's it's almost impossible to replicate. You know, we we had our first year, first two years where they they literally were all living together. They're all down at breakfast point. Like how many AFL teams or professional teams live together? Now, like your college teams, and, and if you talk to any professional athlete, they'll always reminisce about college if they're from the States. Now, I think, to be honest, you might even do the same. We, we often reminisce, it might be uni, it might be high school, um, where you, you day in, day out with the same people. Um, it's very rare to ever experience that again, um, unless you live in a dorm in college or you're you know, obviously a boarder at school in high school. Um, but this is what these guys were doing. They'd all moved away from home. We, we didn't have anyone from Sydney. Um, they all lived at breakfast point together. They all ate together. Um, it was one of those cultures where you, you just would never be able to replicate it again. And even now, the way the Giants have spread out, they've gotten older, they've got families, they've moved, um, you'll never have that again. Um, so that experience was something that was phenomenal to see how these boys grew up together and reacted and to be able to be a part of that it was unbelievable. And um, to your point, I probably didn't really realise what I had until I went to Parramatta because that's the other contrast. It's one of the oldest clubs, one of the most heritage-stripped clubs with so many legends around. You know, like at, 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 uh, at GWS, we had Kevin Cheney, who was a legend of AFL, 
but obviously not a legend of GWS because there were none. Um, so it was great to have someone there, but, you know, to be at Parramatta where, you know, we had a lot of captain's runs where, you know, the, the premiership winning team of, of the 80s, you know, you'd have two of them come out and tell their story. Mm-hmm. And you're standing there going, wow, like that is, that is adding to a legacy and being a part of a legacy. You, you look at uh, a number of the honour boards and they go back so far. And there's so many people that have had, you know, my grandfather followed the team and they loved, I, you don't, I didn't have that with GWS, but I didn't realise the difference. Mm. Um, now, there was a number of people from other clubs there um, that had come, come through and they used to talk about, you know, what we were lacking from that perspective. And I didn't ever disagree, but I probably never appreciated it until I went to Parramatta and just really saw um, what sort of influence that can have and what you can draw on from those things. Mm. Yeah, crazy. That probably also just shows how intense the uh, the atmosphere was. Like you went past that seven or eight years thinking like you, you didn't even think about it because mostly you didn't have time, you know, because it was that full right. up. That's what, man, every year was, and that's, that's again, something unique about the Giants. Every year was, I reckon well, there was about four or five pre-seasons that I, I was just used to every pre-season I'd build a gym mm. because we were like, like in, in 2010, I built a gym in the change room. That was our gym. 2011, we were at Ruby Hill, RSL, so we set up over there and I had to establish the, the gym we used there, so I got used to that gym. Then 2012, we moved to the demountable setup of Blacktown, so I built another gym. Um, 2013, I might be a little bit ahead, but I might be, might be January 2014, uh, but 2014 season, we moved across to, to Homebush, so built a gym out at Homebush. Um, so that was under the athletics track. Mm. Then 2015, we've got our new facility that they're in now. So that's their facility now. It's still at Homebush, but that's a new gym. I had to build that again. So for me, pre-season was just, you know, my off-season was building a gym ready for them to walk in day one pre-season. Um, mm. And we talk about, you know, trying to make progress and everything like that. Like it, it, we used to, you know, we, we, we'd drive at grey stains, we'd train on a field, we'd then lift at Rudy Hill RSL, we'd then go and do touch or what we call craft down at Blacktown. We then do recovery at the local pool. My day was spent driving around and I'd get home and I'd sit down and open my computer for the first time that day um, and then write all the programs, do everything till bloody midnight, get up and and go do it again. Um, It wasn't until we got to Homebush that I actually had this time where I had an office and I could sit in there and do, I was so strange. I'm like, I can actually do work because I don't need to drive after weights to the pool or I don't need to drive after training back to the gym like it's all in one area mm. um so that was yeah that was something that uh, was was unique to me when I finally got halfway through my my tenure at the Giants um and then obviously went to you know you, we had an established facility the facility was amazing everything became easier there um you know you, you then can start to hone down on the, the finer details of the program but um but yeah it was quite a few years before I even had enough time in the day to open my computer at work. I just assumed everyone did their work at home. Luckily, um, early days I was single because uh, I cer- certainly wouldn't have been able to sustain relationships. Yeah, I was. Um, I think I listened to one of your podcast episodes with, um, I think it's Nathan Spencer from the Orlando Magic. And uh, yeah. I think you guys mentioned that it was like a common uh, a common thing that you, you, you don't take a job in the NBA and get married. And then I think he did what the same. That? I think he did the same with the same year or something. Or, or yes, I was told very early in my career um, because it, look, the, people look at the USA as being very shiny and oh my God. Um, 
but they, they do love Australians. There's a lot of Australians that have gone over to the US and been successful. Um, being an Australian coach these days gives you a lot of opportunities in the US. Um, for whatever reason, sometimes when we when we have an Australian accent, they just think we know more about sports science than what we really do. Um, so it's always handy. Um, but it, it is something that's that's quite an option now. You know, 20 years ago, it's almost unheard of. But um, but these days, it's, it is a, a real opportunity for coaches. Mm. Uh, but I was told very early in my career, uh, yeah, don't, don't join the NBA unless you're single, um, because it is it's it's they say it's impossible to maintain a relationship. But yeah, he uh, he got married in January or something, and we hit over in March. So um, mm. they're still they're still going strong. So I wish him all the best. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And also, I was, I was listening to a few other episodes. Uh, I think the last one you speaking with Josh Bruce, the Bulldogs, and you were talking about. I think one of the questions you asked was about the difference between what an what a coach knows and like the skill of the sport, you know, like sometimes a coach can kind of get that stuck in their head or a strength conditioning coach can get like, I want you to do this. Whereas they forget about, you know, he's playing, he's a footy player or he's a soccer player or he's a swimmer. Like they forget about the skill of the sport, prioritize that strength conditioning and try and oversell it when maybe deep down later on in your career, you thought, did they really need that? Yeah. Well, uh, mate, I think every young coach, um, thinks more of the industry than perhaps what it is. Um, I, I probably need to, I, I say this a few times, I probably should preface this answer with saying I value strength conditioning above a lot of things. I, I love the industry and I think we are very important. Mm. I will then go into the answer and say we're not as important as a lot of other people when it comes to team sport athletes. Mm. And I think we can be more influential with some than others. Um, when we're talking about a, a 50-metre freestyle, um, now, I'm sure a lot of swim coaches will say technically still the most important, but that short, linear, very, um, I suppose, specific, unique event, you can influence by increasing good force output, good power, little changes there can make a big difference. Um, a 100-metre sprint, very technical, but increasing someone's ability to produce force um, these type of things have a huge influence on that sport. Mm-hmm. If you look at soccer, AFL, if you increase someone's force output by, let's call it by 50%, it doesn't mean they're going to be a better AFL player. It doesn't mean they're going to be a better soccer player. Mm-hmm. And you then have these unique anti-sport science athletes or sportsmen that by all measure should be terrible at a sport. They have a sloppy rig, they're not that strong, they're not that fit, and then you see them on the field and they kick all the goals, they get the ball all the time. Um, we had a, you know, a great player, Tom Scully, who early in his career, he, his ability to run was like no other. Um, we even had a, a Olympic coaches come by um, that worked in track and field and even commented that his running ability and capacity was something amazing. Um, and, and probably arguably one of the best in, in world team sport. Um, but he was synonymous early in his career that he would be clocking up 18, 19 Ks in a game um, and getting eight touches. And it's like you, your kilometres per possession was so low. And then you had other players that perhaps would only get 12 Ks and touch the ball 35 times. Mm. And so that's sort of the, the relationship. Now, he worked really hard on that and became a really efficient player and a fantastic player. And, and there's, there's a lot of images of him just running opposition, ruthless, and they get tired 
Um, and he ends up obviously overrunning them and getting the ball a number of times, but he just tires out his opposition. Um, but but we have, you know, the, the contrast in a team environment is you can have very athletic people that aren't very good sports people and you have very good sports people that perhaps aren't very athletic. Mm. Now, in that spectrum, we can, we can certainly help out the sportsmen. And if, if they, they value strength conditioning, they value the athletic performance, um, it's really easy to, to add bits to them. But as a young coach, there's no, I definitely value strength conditioning more because I would apply it evenly to everyone. Everyone should be doing this. Everyone needs to benefit. But the older you get, the more you realise that, that not all athletes are created equal and they never will be. It's a, it's a nice, um, you know, utopian thought that, you know, everyone's equal and, and stuff. They're not. You know, when, when athletes turn up, if I'm working with a 29-year-old like, athlete that has got a brown line medal in an AFL team, they, they can pick and choose a little bit. I'm going to listen to them more. If you're an 18-year-old that's just come to me, you know, we used to call it Camp X-Ray. You've got no rights. You follow the rules. You, you, you follow everything until you prove to us that you're someone different. If you prove to us that you're unique, then we'll start treating you that way. Mm. But until then, you're an 18-year-old junior that's come into a club. You've got to earn your spot. Mm. Um, and that's not to say we don't give them attention and look after them and individualise things, obviously. But you know, until you start to prove otherwise, you need to follow what we believe is the best protocol. Um, as you earn the right, you earn the right to have more control and more responsibility over you and what you do because you start to, to learn how your body responds to everything. Um, and as a young coach, I definitely didn't act like that, but I learned very quickly. Um, and I learned that my influence can be far greater on athletes that, uh, that may have a history of injury, um, aren't that strong, aren't that powerful, because I can influence that. Um, and then you see that get influenced on the, on the field. You see them running for longer. They're running for longer, so they're getting more touches. They're getting more touches, so they're getting more confidence. Like it's a, it's a snowball effect. So sometimes people say, well, we can't make them a better footballer. But if you can make someone fitter and they're more confident and they touch the ball more often for more quarters, they get more exposure, they may scrape into the team, then they get more games under their belt and they get better. And they get more confident again. And it's this, this snowball effect that you, know, you, you add little bits here and there to players um, mm. and you can create an amazing football. Yes, as a strength conditioning coach, you didn't directly make them better at football, but you gave them the opportunity to get better at football. And at the end of the day, that's what we do. We, we create opportunities for athletes by improving biomechanical abilities and biomotor abilities um, that hopefully will make them better. Sometimes it works better for others. And other athletes, they're already superstars, they're already so talented that hopefully maybe we can influence and just reduce their injuries a bit. You know, mm. it's, you, you've got to be, I think, as a strength conditioning coach, humble enough to understand that, that you're not that important, but also confident enough to understand that in some cases you can be. Um, but you've got to be able to judge when that is. Mate, I've got so many questions based off that, but um, <laughs> I've got to kind of put them in the back seat maybe that's a whole other episode in itself, but um, perfectly answered, man. Really, really well said. Uh, but now I want to jump off to more so on yourself. Working back in more so AFL uh, or, or your time with Parramatta, not so much with Athletes Authority, I want you to just kind of describe to me the pressures and the stress that you were put under and how you dealt with that. What was, what was pressure for you on the big stage in AFL? <coughs> um, 
Look, in, in the AFL, I was obviously I was the the strength and power coach. So although a senior staff member, um, I also had a, a high performance manager above me. Um, early days was John Quinn, as we mentioned, um, and then the second sort of part of my career was David Joyce. So one, I was very lucky to have two two very good uh, mentors, very good managers, um, albeit both very different uh, in the way they manage. Um, but both were very good at um, taking the bullets, so to speak. I probably didn't realise how good uh, until I had to take the bullets of Paramount. Um, and I think that's a real part of being a high-performance manager is, is creating an environment for your staff to be able to do the best job they can. Um, so the head coach, no doubt, a lot of times in private conversations with a high-performance manager will point the finger at performance staff and say, now, Lockie's not getting them strong enough or Lockie's not getting them fast enough or these type of things. But that high-performance manager doesn't then tell you because he will know or she will know what will motivate you better. Sometimes the motivation needs to be there like, you know, like coaches need to see more from it and that will give someone a kick in the ass to get moving. Other times you know that if you're piling that type of pressure on, then as a strength conditioning coach, you may not be able to focus on doing your job and doing your job well. Um, so I was lucky enough at the Giants to have two very good managers that, um, that could could manage that type of pressure. Mm. But in saying that, um, they also put their own pressures and, you know, we had different coaches. You know, we had a coach called Mark Williams. Uh, for those who know AFL, Chopper Williams is uh, now at Melbourne. He's arguably one of the best coaches I've ever seen in action and ever worked with, but he certainly lacks some of the social skills um, of making people feel happy and joyous. And some people might say that is not a part of football. But so be it. Um, but he certainly spoke his mind. Um, and to be honest, it was great. I think he's the exposure I had of him um, really taught me how to deal with coaches a lot better. Um, because, you know, there was, there was days that he just grilled me time and time again about things um, over and over. And, um, you know, it, it took a long time for me to earn the respect of him. But I started to realise that that's who he was. You know, he, he rode people um, in the organisation to make them better. Um, and ultimately, once you earn the trust, you earn your trust. Um, and I'll never forget, uh, Quinny was away one day and I had to leave one of the training sessions. Um, you know, I, I led all the prep work, um, had to manage all the ins and outs of the coaches, the GPS monitoring, communication with coaches, and basically was the performance manager for that session. Um, and on my drive home, I was freaking exhausted. I'm like, that was a big day. Um, and... Then I got a phone call from Chocker and I just thought, oh, crap, this is the last thing I need. I'm in the car. I'm just going to get grilled for something. Um, and he called and said, look, I just want to let you know you did a phenomenal job today. Absolutely killed it. Um, see you tomorrow. And, yeah, that was it. And that's huge. Like That that from a, from a coach that has been writing you for so long about things, to, to have that, he's sort of like, okay, well, you know, you, you sort of make progress. So um, I personally love having accountability. I do like, like I said before, um, I couldn't be under a boss for the rest of my life. But as a young coach, it's the best thing for me to have people keep writing me because I do, do respond very well to, to critical feedback. Mm. Um, there's certainly people that don't um, and there are people that probably will struggle in a, a team sport environment because the environment itself is very open and honest and it's never personal. And um, it's something that you've really got to learn for some people because it doesn't always come naturally that, that when someone's yelling at you and just absolutely hammering you, it, it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with the 
process, the system, how it fits in, the results. Um, and people that can't move on quickly are going to struggle because head coaches move on real quick. Um, you know, the, the old phrase that have the, the, the brain of a goldfish where you just, you know, your memory just goes because, oh, and Parramatta was the same. Brad Arthur is a very strong-willed person. He's got very strong opinions and he will tell everyone how he feels all the time. Mm. Um, and, yeah, there's been mornings where he comes in, absolutely grill me for something, hammer around and then leave. And then I'll go down and, you know, we've got breakfast and he'll be chirping away, chatting like nothing's happened. And that's just what head coaches are like. And you, you need to be more like that because anytime you hold on to things, that's what's going to eat you away. Mm-hmm. And I've, I learned very quickly that, that it's actually not personal. No one ever yelled at me and said, you're not funny or, or you're a terrible person or your decision in friends is shocking. You, know, you, you, you don't have morals or, or that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's always critical of the, the program and how it fits and the results and things that need to be done better as a job, not as a person. Um, And I think people need to understand that and and it it does change the way you take on pressures because uh, I I probably do have a big belief that uh, you can never give offence, you can only take offence. And and I I do like that saying. It's something that for me, if if anyone's being critical of me, it's it's on me if I take offence because at the end of the day, you make the decision on how you want to respond to it. Yeah, it's it's like they want that they want you to because they know you've got the capabilities of being better. For example, if you do mess up or you do get grilled, but it's the same like on the field for athletes. Like uh, Captain Grill is one of the new young players because he knows he's got the potential, but he wants him to be better because he knows he's got it. Yeah. They can shake hands after the game like nothing's happened. Like that's that's what should be you know if they take it personally, that's on them. That's not on the person who actually you know did the grilling, for example. Yeah, and it's you see it all the time in football. Um, you know, you, on the weekend, uh, you look at um, the Titans. I don't know if you follow NRL, but the Titans, um, you know, lost on the buzzer, so to speak, um, by a poor pass from one of their right edges. Um, and one of the players there just absolutely lost it with it. Um, and you hear from people that haven't been in the sporting world, they're like, oh, you know, geez, how do they function as a team when they're just yelling at each other like that? Mm. It's like, well, it's actually like, it's not, it's, it's, it is, it is pure emotion, but it's not personal. It's, mm. it's emotion because of the investment and the belief that they have in the team and the expectations they have on their teammates because the coaches put that on them, players put them on each other. Um, and a good team is someone that can have critical conversations and critique whether it be aggressive or not. But the reason that people don't take it offensively is the underlying trust. Mm. And you see teams that don't have trust and therefore they fracture because they try and have this critical feedback. But if you don't trust it, for example, if I don't trust you and then you come at me with something, I'm always going to take offence to that and get on my, my haunches because of it. But if you're a close friend and I trust you, then you can say anything you want to me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it the way it was intended. Um, and you see it a lot. You see when people say, oh, the, the coach has lost the dressing room. Now, it's not necessarily the coach has lost the dressing room. There's probably just distrust amongst the group and they're trying to get feedback to the group. But when the group doesn't have that trust, feedback is always going to be taken inappropriately. Mm. Yeah. I was just recently talking to Tom Redden, who's the who's at the GWS uh, women's yeah. 
um, netball and uh, women's AFL team. And he's massive on that trust. I was talking about what he does to set a culture and whatnot. And the first thing he said was that trust. And it's, and it's much what you've just backed then. Um, but mate, I'll, and you, you might've also answered this just, just then with that, um, with that experience with Choco, but um, when in your career, have you felt like you've been most vulnerable? Uh, probably, honestly, at that stage, because it was not only Choco being um, a very confronting coach, um, it was me also being inexperienced. I was a young coach. And I remember in 2011, Choco said to me, and we were sitting there and um, it was in a room, me, Quinny and Choco, and Choco turned to me and said, you know, so you, know, you haven't had experience in senior AFL. Well, what if I wanted to do more kicking with the players? Um, were you going to let me do more kicking? And I simply said to him, honestly, I would turn to Quinny and, and ask him because he's the experienced one. Um, I couldn't tell you if they've done too much kicking or not because I haven't had that experience in a senior setting. And he sort of looked at me and sort of went, you could tell he didn't. He often answers with actually not saying anything, but you, know, you could see that he kind of went, well, I respect the honesty, but also, well, is this kid you know, going to be what we need? Is he, does he have enough experience? Mm. Um, so that was probably the most vulnerable time. That was where I, I, I and when I say vulnerable, it was me knowing that, that I didn't have the experience as a senior team. But um, again, to be honest, I kind of, I'm a little bit of a, whether you, you the old story of you, you, you want to be south of arrogant, north of confident. Um, and I like to think I live in that realm. And in that moment is where I just sort of in my head, I'm like, well, yeah, I, I'm fucking out of my depth, but there's not a time where I'm not going to be. It doesn't matter when I decide to take the plunge, you're going to be out of your depth at some stage. Mm-hmm. If I'm never out of my depth, then, then I've never actually made much progression. So, um, you know, I've always had that mentality. So I probably, it never really got to me in that stage, but mate, there, were, there were days you'd come home and thought you made every mistake in the world. There are other days where you had an amazing, amazing um, day. And the other time is, you know, being in the, the performance setting and it doesn't, this part does not change. It doesn't matter how old the experience you get, um, that you take injuries very personal. You know, someone does a hamstring, you think, oh, did I not do enough of this? Did I do more of too much of this? Someone does a shoulder. Someone, like, even concussion, you're just like, oh, have we, yeah, have we got enough network in there? Is, it, is there something more we can add? They're like, yeah, that does not stop from a young coach to you know, a very senior coach. Um, you feel responsible. And to be honest, the, the higher you go, the more responsible you feel. Um, even when you're a, a HPM role and you may not directly be on the gym floor running the strength program, something happens, you, you feel responsible. Um, you know, and that was me. It's, 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 it's what you should do. It's, Again, the memory of a goldfish. You, you want to you want to move on quickly from it because it'll it'll eat you up. But um, but if you don't if you don't take it a bit personally and don't get a bit hurt from it, um, I, I don't think you probably invested well enough. Um, but you need to move on. It's same with the team when you have a loss. And I think Choco Choco actually taught this is a lesson I learned from Choco early on, and I, I really like it. But I remember one in our first year we had a we had a massive loss, and um, and we're on the bus and all the boys were pretty up and about because we lost every weekend. Now, what's again? Um, and Choco sat up, sat up, stood up and just absolutely lost it. Um, I won't quote him uh, specifically, but along the lines of, uh, you know, if you think this is what I'm happy to settle for, mm. then you are gravely mistaken. Um, and if you don't dare hurt after this, then you may as well get off his bus and don't bother coming back. 
and that hit the players and it hit me as well. I'm like, yeah, like you don't want to have this, this mentality of taking it home and everything because in contrast in fashion, I'll never forget Brad Arthur had the same thing that we had a big loss and he gave a bit of a similar speech around, you know, you should be hurting, um, but your family and friends are outside and they support you every bloody day. So don't you dare take this home and put it on them. Don't you dare have a bad mood. Don't you dare make them pay for our mistake. Um, and I thought that was really powerful. And it's sort of, if you were to combine them together, um, to me, it's like, it's a bit of a summary for everything in the performance world. It's make it hurt and, and make sure you take things like that personally mm. because they make you better. Mm. But you better not dwell on it. You better move on real quick. Um, and I've always liked that. And I've always liked athletes that, that act like that naturally where, you know, after a game that they've lost, they don't want to talk. They sit there, they're down. They don't want to have anything to do with you, with other people. They're just, they're hurting. But by the time they've recovered, showered, they're a little bit better. By the time they're home, they're much better. The next day at recovery, you know, we've sort of, we're ready to assess what we did wrong, but emotionally I'm ready to start going again. Um, and I think that's such an important thing for, for athletes, but also coaches because we ride the waves with them. Um, we want to take things personally when it's going to make us better, but we want to move on as quick as we can. Yeah, no, for sure. There's um, That reminds me of uh, speaking to a guy called Dan Hasler, who's a, a motivational speaker uh, for not just sporting organizations, but other organizations as well. As he said, there's this technique that the uh, All Blacks used to use called, I think, red, green, red lighting or blue, red thinking. And it's blues thinking of, you know, you switch off, um, you go home, you, you, you treat your miss as well, you, you run into your kids, you play with your kids. Instead of having that red thinking, for example, a bad loss, and then you go off the bus and then you throw it onto your, your family. You you run into your kid and you're thinking, oh, you step on that piece of Lego and you blame your kid and you yell at your kid instead of like you step on the piece of Lego with that blue light thinking and then you go ahead and play with your kid instead. Or um, it's that switching that mentality from, you know, they're supportive. Why am I unloading my my shit onto them? And that's the same with athletes, the same with coaches as it is for athletes, like you're saying. Um, uh, when you got that same kind of switch when when you're in that bus, when I... Mm. When, when they when they let off at you so yeah um and i want to just ask you one one other question before i go to my, my last three ones at the end but my what would you say that you're struggling with the most at the moment um honestly not being in team sport um i love i love the the, the wave of probably pre-season i'm not missing but but in season um I, I love our athletes here and, and I love, uh, I love um, you know, getting around their results and everything, but um, 250 athletes with 250 different competitions is very different to one team, one competition, one result. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things I love in what I do um, and I obviously at this stage wouldn't change a thing because it's, it's a very exciting time. Um, but if I had to pick one thing, I'll show you, it, it is watching on the weekends, not being involved in, in a single team um, that's riding on a result week to week because I just, I really don't think there's anything like it. Um, you know, we, again, I'm biased. I think we have one of the best teams here and our staff have one of the best cultures um, and I love it. And I know so many organisations get, uh, coaches get athletes to come in and, and talk about team environments and, and they do team building weekends and they try and build these teams. Um, nothing will ever come close 
to actually being in a team um, and riding the wave week to week because um, there's, there's, there's no team building required for staff in, in professional organisations um, when you have the right staff riding the wave that you do because it's, the experience itself is, is what you get through. You go to a team building weekend, they try and make you work together, solve problems, go through some turmoil and ultimately come out the end better for it. You do that every bloody day um, in, a, in a team environment. Um, if you have the wrong staff, then you, you need to work on that, but you're hoping you haven't hired the wrong staff. Um, but, yeah, the, the emotional drain and the emotional highs uh, that you go through in, in a team environment is unmatchable. Um, I think we've done an amazing job here at, at replicating it, uh, but you, you're never going to be able to until you're, you're in a team. So um, when you say struggle, I probably don't. I think I'm living pretty well if that's my only struggle, um, apart from the lack of sleep with a newborn. Um, but, yeah, I think for me it is that's the one thing that, um, that really does sort of I miss. But then again, I'm, I'm brought back down to earth a little bit when I'm watching a game and there's you know, three injuries in the game um, and I can switch off the game and continue with my beer. Um, I don't need to deal with the coach. I don't need to manage what's happening the next day, move this around. It's... Yeah, so I, I quickly come back down to earth and enjoy where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, I understand that, mate. Understand that. Uh, well, I just want to hear you with three quick questions to finish off, mate. The first one I ask you is: uh, Can you think of anything in the past where you've had like an embarrassing event where you've felt embarrassed that's had a permanent effect on you, whether it be a good or a bad effect? Permanent effect. Mm. Um, I'm probably going to confess and say that it's very hard to embarrass me. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not the embarrassing type, but um, I don't know. Honestly, off the top of my head, um, when I was younger in high school, we had to sing, and that was pretty embarrassing. I'm a terrible singer, um, and that that certainly had a long-lasting effect of, of public singing. Um, but other than that, it's yeah, it, it's it's a very tough thing for me. I don't think I've ever been publicly embarrassed. It's affected me. There's been embarrassing moments at times, um, you know, when, you, when you're when you know, trying to entertain a group and a joke dies or something like that. But, um, but certainly not something that I've been never told a joke before or again. Um, so that's a tough one. I don't think there's ever been anything that's affected me long-term, um, but there's certainly been embarrassing moments in my life. Mm. Well, that's good that you mentioned that about jokes and also the fact that um, you're a dad yourself. Now this should give you a bit of experience. Uh, congratulations, by the way, on, on the new book. Um, but give me, if you have one, give me your best dad joke. Best chat, dad joke. Um, <clears throat> so a, uh, a guy walks into a bar um, and he's got a steering wheel down his pants. And uh, the guy next to him goes, mate, you got a steering wheel down your pants. And the guy goes, yeah, I know, mate, it's driving me nuts. That's my that's my number one. I got to. I've never heard that one before. That's good. <laughs> oh Jesus, I'm getting really really cringy ones these days. Like you know what's uh, brown and sticky. I'm just like, oh, it might be a stick. I think, but it's you know yeah. it's a classic one. But that's good. That's different. Um, and just to finish it off, mate, have you got any company? You've given plenty already, and this has been gold this whole uh, this whole conversation, which is awesome. So I appreciate your time. But have you got any last minute advice that you might want to give out? to any students or any kind of coaches, physios that are coming through the ranks at the moment? Yeah, I think um, uh, <laughs> it's a bit of an uh, evolution transition. I think with a lot of people, um, 
at the moment, so, so a lot of people tend to badmouth internships or free work or, or things like this and always get your value and everything like that. Um, I probably think we've swung the pendulum a little bit too far there and people are, are probably feeling a bit uh, entitled that they feel like as soon as they graduate, they should go into a high-paying job. Um, unfortunately, that's not our industry um, and it will never be like that. So I think as a young coach, get your head around the fact that when you're young, say yes to everything. Get, get fingers dirty. Get yourself working wherever you can. Just because you love AFL, don't just do AFL. If there's an opportunity with track or with swimming, take it up. Mm. Um, only as you get more experienced uh, is it a time for you to not say yes to everything because I think it's an important time that when you are an old coach, you don't say yes to everything because you, your energy gets pulled in every direction. But when you're, when you're young, you, you don't have a serious relationship. You, you might have might be living at home where you don't have to pay rent or anything like that. Say yes to everything. Get yourself out there, and because the the opportunities that have come to me in my life, the opportunities that come to most coaches um, is often in scenarios you you don't always think about, um, and you never know until you meet someone, you meet athletes, you have uh, ideas around things, you, you're exposed to environments. Um, so my single bit of advice, I think, is as a young coach, say yes to everything and earn the right to start saying no to things. Yeah, 100%. And so much of what you just said then has just been like um, mentioned in previous podcasts or previous episodes that I've talked about. Um, people saying that interns almost have this attitude that you, you're expected to be rewarded for your time, which, again, we're not in that industry where that happens. I think you're supposed to be rewarded for the, what you do at that time. I think that's what it should be. I think um, internship, that's not to say that when you work for free or anything like that, you shouldn't have value. You know, you should, you should be getting value out of it. If you're not getting value out of it, then hands down, yeah, decide that, no, it's not like if you're just treated, treated like a slave and you're not developing, that's a different story. But yeah. most internships, whether it be via experience, exposure or education, are going to add value. Mm. Um, so, yeah, don't get confused. You say just... just just be working for free for no reason if you feel like you're being treated like absolute scum. Um, but I think there's too many people going the other way thinking, oh, well, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've just finished my undergrad. I should be on 80000 a year. Uh, that's, that's not the industry. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I completely agree with that. Um, well, mate, just to finish off again, what, where's, where can people uh, link to yourself or, or get in touch with you if they wanted to get in touch with you? And, and what's next for you guys, athletic, uh, Athletes Authority? Yeah, easiest would be just on uh, on Instagram at performance coach uh, underscore Wilmot is usually the best place. Um, oh, I, I kind of I'm kind of on most social things, but I, I very rarely check anything else. Uh, it just becomes too hard. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, athletes authority wise, um, yeah, in hopefully 2022 if we're bloody out of lockdown, um, keep an eye out. We're, we're we are launching a lot of education programs next year. Um, so there'll there'll be a number of education things, and that'll be a big drive for us. Um, we had a, a philosophy of, of nailing everything in between the four walls here. Um, and I feel like we've, we've done that really well. And now it's time to, to go outside the four walls and, and put some education work out. Perfect, mate. Really good stuff. I uh, really do appreciate your time, mate. I really appreciate you fitting me into your really busy schedule. Um, but I don't want to keep you any more longer than I need to. Um, and I'm sure you got a shitload on today. So uh, that's all we have time for, mate. So thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Sam. So thanks to Lockie for jumping on this episode of the podcast. Uh, it seems like he's uh, only just getting started, even though he's been in the industry for so long and has so many different experiences to share. So I really appreciate your time, mate. 
Um, what we talked about, uh, how we moved from the professional sporting atmosphere from both AFL and rugby now into private practice and how he always wanted to be his own boss and he loves uh, working for himself. Uh, so it really can resonate with that. Uh, he recalled his exhausting period of working in AFL and starting up the role at GWS and being the first one there. And we talked about how many different AFL clubs have such rich history and GWS is only just starting and he was a bit of basically being a part of that. And as he detailed, he would make gyms every single preseason and really build or start those building blocks for how the club is today. Um, he talks about how strength conditioning is is necessary in teams, but you know have to have a wise a wise cap on with a strength conditioning coach on how you play your part in a role. So, not neglecting the skill of athletes and understanding that that athletes have also, you know, some are gifted to perform the sport rather than they need any kind of biomechanical help. So, which is good. So we also talked about how he took injuries personally in high performance sport. It was just a habit that he thought, oh, what else could he be doing? Did he doubt himself at some kind of times? But he really wanted to make his program better if they were having hamstring injuries, et cetera, et cetera, or, or neck injuries and how he could make his program a little bit better. And also we're talking about having disputes between coaching staffs or even athletes and how this is so common in high performance sport. We talked about how taking it personally isn't the right way to go. and all these disputes in high performance are normal. You can't give offense, but you can only take offense. Um, So I really resonate with that. So it's really not what's what's said to you, but it's how you understand it, how you take it. So yeah, really appreciate the time. Lucky, thank you very much, mate. Hope we have a chat again soon. Um, But if anything today has triggered anything within your own mental health, please feel free to get in touch with myself or with Lucky. Um, He's doing some really good stuff up there in Athletes Authority, so in in Sydney. So please reach out to him if if you need. Uh, and I'm always down for a chat as well, so don't forget that. Um, thank you to Stance for providing the music for this episode and uh, for Sustainable Sports for sponsoring this episode. But apart from that, that's all we have time for. So again, I'll see you guys next time.